The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Well, good morning. Good to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name's Garrison. I'm one of the pastors. Sorry for the congestion. Been uh, nursing a cold all week. I asked him to fill in for me, and he was like, I'm going through my base era, so no. <laughs> that didn't really happen. That didn't really happen. Um, if you got a Bible, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we'll get there. Uh, in just a little bit. As we've said every week, please grab the Bible um, in the seat back in front of you because we actually want to go through it together rather than on the screen um, behind me. If you would stand for the last time as we read the Apostles' Creed together. Let's read. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray while you're still standing. Father God, we we thank you that we get uh, to be together. We thank you for uh, the truth of the creed, the truth of your word that we've gotten to study uh, the last 12 odd weeks. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we look to the last line and to our future hope. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. What's going to happen when we die? You ever thought about that one? Maybe a lot. Are we going to be spirits? Are we going to be ghosts, angels? Is nothing going to happen at all? Just like going to sleep, but forever, will we be reincarnated? What happens in the afterlife? That's the question we're going to answer as we wrap up our series on the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Creed has taken us uh, to look in the past tense that God the Father has created the heavens and the earth, that His Son Jesus came to earth to live the perfect life and to die for us and to rise and ascend to heaven. The creed has looked at the present tense, that the Holy Spirit is active and moving among us even now, that the church is something that we've been saved into, that the forgiveness of sins is available to us. And now the creed will end by looking forward, and it will do so with this final phrase, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, uh, similar to a couple weeks ago when uh, we talked about heaven versus hell and judgment, I think many of us probably have some big question marks about this line in the creed, because at a basic level, it's concerned with that question. What what happens in the afterlife? What happens when I die? And this line says we're going to be resurrected. We're going to be resurrected with a body. What's going to happen with this that we have today? How's this all going to work? And I would say that we have to have these answers. You have to have answers to these questions, because at the end of the day, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, that's supposed to be what we as Christians are holding on to with deep hope. It's what we're supposed to be looking forward to with certainty. This line that is a biblical reality should be the part of the bedrock of your faith. 
that you lean on in the midst of suffering and trials and sin in your life and in the world and in everyday monotony. This line should give us immense confidence and assurance and hope and peace, but it can't do any of that if we're just looking at it like, what does that mean? What is that going to be like? I don't understand. It can't do any of that if it truly makes us more confused than it does hopeful. So my goal for this morning is very simple. I just want to break down this line. I guess you could say phrase by phrase. Look at the resurrection, look at the body, and look at life everlasting, and then try to get that on the ground for us. So that's what we're doing. If you got a Bible, like I said, 1 Corinthians 15, we got a lot of scripture to get through. This is verse 12. Read with me. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. A lot to unpack there. First point, this is talking about the resurrection. Let's talk about the resurrection. So Paul is writing to this church in Corinth where apparently some of the church had rejected the notion of the resurrection. Their line of thinking was that although they affirmed that Jesus had been resurrected, they're saying that that doesn't mean anything for us, that his people won't be resurrected at all. And what Paul is arguing is that there's a connection. You can't separate the two. The resurrection of Jesus is connected to the resurrection of his people. And Paul is adamant about this. He's essentially saying you cannot have one without the other. Because Jesus rose, so will we. Resurrection is one of the things that we have in store in our future. And it's for everyone. To be overly simplistic, it means that everyone lives after they die. This is what Jesus himself says in John chapter 5. I'll have it on the screen behind me. Jesus says, For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. He says that both those who believe and those who don't believe in Jesus will be resurrected. For the Christian, we will be raised to eternal life with God. And for those who don't believe, they'll be raised to judgment in eternity separated from God. But either way, resurrection is happening, and it means that death is not the end. Resurrection means that death is not the end. Now, intellectually, we got some major reservations with this, right? Because at the end of the day, this sounds kind of crazy. Because I, I don't know about you, I've never met someone that's been resurrected before. Hasn't come up in conversation. So how can we believe that something so incredible is going to happen? And Paul and the writers of Scripture, they say the reason that we can trust that such a supernatural thing is going to happen is because 
it already has happened. It, in fact, has already happened. We will be raised just as Jesus was raised. That's the promise of the scriptures. If you believe in Jesus' resurrection, which we as Christians do, then you have to believe in the resurrection of his people. This is what Paul is saying when he starts off in verse 12. I'll read it again. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Saying that essentially Jesus' resurrection has now started a new trend, the resurrection that is coming. Because Jesus rose, so will we. This is Paul's whole argument. If you don't believe in the resurrection that's coming for us, then you're undermining the resurrection of Jesus, which is basically undermining the whole thing. It's undermining our whole religion. Paul writes, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, everything we're doing here is just wasting your Sunday morning. It's completely pointless. Your faith is in vain. Even worse, it's futile, and you're still in your sins. Everything we talked about last week, right? The forgiveness of sins that's available. Without the resurrection, it's not true. There's no hope. There is no forgiveness without resurrection because sin and death are tied together. Without the resurrection, the power of sin is not broken. And the consequence of sin, which is death, would still be undefeated. The sign that sin has been taken care of is that Jesus defeats death. And if he has not defeated death, then we're stuck in our sin. In his death, Jesus pays the penalty, but in his resurrection, he wins the victory. So without the resurrection of Jesus, we are wasting our time. But because he has been raised, we have victory over sin and hope. We will be raised just as he was raised. The resurrection is not an if. It is just a when. When will it happen? Which is the next question. How is this all going to work? <laughs> How's this going to come to be? What's it going to be like and when will it happen? That's our next point. We got to talk about the body. You can skip to verse 35. Paul keeps writing, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I love this. The Bible is acknowledging the exact questions that we have. These people that he's writing to weren't just naive. They have the same questions as us. How's this going to look? Keep going. 36, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. You see what he's starting to set up here. There's going to be some similarities, but it's going to be different. What's he mean? Verse 41. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. The first man, talking about Adam, 
was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Underline this verse if you have a pen. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So we will have a body. So here's the deal. When we die, your body will go in the ground or its final resting place. And your spirit will go to be in heaven as a believer. This is what we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? The, body, the spirits of believers go to be with God in heaven, what's commonly called Abraham's bosom. And non-believers will go to Gehenna, what's commonly called hell. But after a time, Jesus will return. And everyone will be raised from the dead and given a new body. Your spirit and your body will be reunited. So, you're not going to be an angel, ever. I don't care what your aunt posts on Facebook. It's not happening. You're not even going to be a spirit forever, although there will be a time. You're not going to be a floating soul up in the clouds forever. We're embodied forever. We actually uh, get some specifics, too, on how this will go down. Uh, this is First Thessal Thessalonians 4.13. It'll be behind me. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, he means dead, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, he's saying they're already with him. Those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, are with God in heaven. And when Jesus comes back, he's bringing them with him. Keep going. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first, the devil raise and receive their new bodies. Then we who are left, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So the Lord will return sometime in the future, and those who are dead will rise from the grave into new resurrected bodies. And the living, who are still alive, at his return will be given new bodies as well. And that body is going to be different. It's going to be different from the one that you have now. We're not just getting resuscitated, right? It's not like we're going to be Lazarus, if you remember that story, where he dies and Jesus just brings him back in the same body. But he had to die again. That's a bummer for him. That's not going to happen to us. We're not getting re resuscitated. We're being resurrected. And not right away, not right when we die, but when Jesus returns. Now, I'm trying to be as clear as possible because you have to be. You have to be clear with what the Bible actually gives us about this topic because there's actually some ambiguity. Some of the specifics, some the practical stuff, it may not be there. So I want us to notice what these texts are doing and what they're not doing. So it is saying that there's going to be a resurrection. It is saying that it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. It is saying that there will be a body. It is saying it will happen when Jesus returns. But it's not giving precise clarity on what that will look like practically. 
What I mean is it's not answering questions like, what age will we be? What will we look like? Will we go to the bathroom? Will we sleep? I know some of you Google these. Doesn't answer that. The text doesn't answer those questions. What it does do is it shows that there will be a sort of continuity between what is now and what will be. So you will still be you, but it will be different. It will be completely different and better. That's what Paul means when he uses this language of sowing versus reaping. That a seed, our bodies, go into the ground. It has to die for something new to be raised. You have a natural body that will be planted and a spiritual body that will be raised. There's continuity, but the specifics are not laid out. And honestly, it's better not to guess. It's better not to speculate. But here's what we know. It'll be different. It'll be amazing. Holy and other and good. And because Jesus was raised first, and is what the Bible calls the first fruits of the resurrection, we can look at the gospel accounts and sort of wonder and get glimpses of what our resurrected bodies will be like. I'll give you a couple. It's not exhaustive. So first one, Jesus had a body. We see this in John 20, 20. It says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He's with the disciples, and he literally shows them his physical body. They touch him. In other words, Jesus' body was recognizable. John 20, 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary recognizes him. Jesus ate food. I'm excited about this one. This is from Luke 24, 42. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And last one I'll give you is Jesus' body was physical, but also beyond physical. This one's kind of fun. John 20, 26. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I love this story. The disciples are like hiding after Jesus died. They're afraid for the, that the, uh, the religious leaders and the Romans are coming for them next. They're in a locked room, and then Jesus is just there. What's up? Maybe walks through a wall. I don't know. So it's different. So yes, there's plenty we can glean from these verses and in other gospel accounts, but it's still not cut and dry. We're not given the blueprints. But there is one thing that you have to see. And it's the best thing. It's that Jesus was raised in glory. And that is what we have to look forward to too. Life everlasting. Read with me verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So both Christians and non-Christians will be resurrected, given new bodies. The Christian, though, will be given a perfected body. This is what the Bible calls glorification. So at the coming of Christ, bodies will be resurrected and perfected. Redemption will be complete. 
I don't know if you know this, you should, but God has a plan for your life, and that is to redeem you, to work out his plan of redemption in your life. And the way that plan works is like this. He justifies us. Jesus has made us righteous. He is sanctifying us now in this life. He's making us more like him. And one day, the work will be complete. He will glorify us. He will make us perfect. Uh, Wayne Grudem defines glorification like this. He says, glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. We will be like the man from heaven. We will have perfected bodies. This is how Paul says it again in Philippians 3. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Or as Paul said, we will be changed. Oh, how we long for that in a twinkling of an eye. So yes, it is not a blueprint. It is not as practical as we may, not, may like. But instead of that, we get an invitation. An invitation to use a sanctified imagination. To think about, to pray about, to meditate on. What is this going to be like? How amazing will this be? This is a future better than you could ever imagine. This is a body that will not be marked by sin. Think about your life and how your body is marked by sin and how bad that is for you. No more. That's done. A body with no disease, no pain, no aches, not burdened by death. You never have to wonder, when am I going to die? That will never happen again. Imagine what that will be like. This side of eternity, we're being transformed by God through salvation and sanctification. We're slowly, day by day, sometimes painfully, being transformed to be more like Jesus. But when he returns, it will be done. We'll finally be like him. We will be glorified and we will live with God and everyone in this room forever, forever. Death won't just be defeated, it will be wiped out. It will be destroyed. It will be gone forever. This is what eternity will be like for the Christian. Jesus will return. We will be raised from the dead, given new perf perfect bodies, untainted by the fall. No death, no sin, no addiction, no pain, no loss. And we will live with God and his people forever. That, that is what we confess when we read the line. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We are saying with confidence that we believe one day Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will raise us into glorious new bodies to live with him forever. So, a lot of verses, a lot of theology, a lot of things. I, I now want to just try to get this on the ground for us. What this means for you today. Um, so what, what the creed is ultimately doing in this final line, is it's pointing us to the future hope for a Christian. This is the Bible's hope for the future. And uh, regardless 
of whether or not you are a Christian. How you live your life is completely dictated by whether or not you have hope. Hope is the fuel that drives everyone. I'll give you a dumb example. When I was a kid, I would literally lose my mind at the thought of going shopping with my mom, but I had to. I hated going to the grocery store, hated doing any errands, but there was one place that was not a problem. I loved going there, and it was the mall, which is weird because we would be at the mall five times longer than we would be at any of these other places. And there was a reason. We would walk around, go shopping. My mom would make me try on clothes, which I also hated. Um, and then the trip would end, and we would go to my favorite place in the world at the time, a card shop called The Fine Art of Baseball. And in this shop, my mom would buy me Pokemon cards, which was the holy grail of my childhood. <laughs> I would throw a ch tantrum, I kid you not, we still talk about this, me and my mom, to this day, at the thought of going anywhere else. But if we go to the mall, I have no problems because I have something to look forward to. I had a promise from my mom that every time we go to the mall, there's something great at the end. And as silly as it sounds, when we went other places, I had no hope. I had nothing to hope in, you know? But we go to the mall, I'm an angel because I have hope. I have something to look forward to. Hope drives us. At a basic level, hope is what you fill in this blank with. As long as blank happens, I'll be okay. As long as this happens, I will be okay. And we do this with a lot of things. We can be like me when I was a kid. Like, I just want the thing. I need the Pokemon cards. But we do it with other stuff. A better job, a better house or a house at all, a better car, more money, relationship or marriage, stages of life, your next vacation, or more time to rest. And, and these aren't necessarily bad things by themselves, but this is a slippery slope. And you can very easily cross the line from hoping for something because it's what you want and are just looking forward to into something that you need and something that you must have to live. And when that happens, you have graduated from hope into ultimate hope. And ultimate hope, it, what it's supposed to be is it's supposed to be the bedrock of your soul. And the problem is a misplaced ultimate hope will ruin your life. It doesn't work. Because when anything other than Jesus and what he has prepared for us in eternity becomes your ultimate hope, it will fail you badly. Surely, I, you have to see this too. Like this isn't surprising news. Surely you see this in your life. Like think, just think about things like anxiety. I'm not saying all the time, but how much of that is your ultimate hope failing you? I wanted to be something that I'm not. I wanted people to think of me a certain way. Isn't that just ultimate hopes of approval or success? That you're impressive to others? Or maybe that a certain level of wealth is your ultimate hope? Or certain quality of health? for yourself, for loved ones? What about with depression? Not saying all the time, but I think you can trace this to a failing ultimate hope. I don't have the relationship. I don't have the marriage. I don't have a good marriage. I didn't get the job or the promotion. Surely you see this with things like anger and jealousy and lust. This is a failing ultimate hope showing its head. Anytime you start to feel restless, anxious, angry over not having something, 
or getting something and it letting you down. These emotions are just a check engine light for you to say, oh, something is off under the surface. It's a failing ultimate hope. Because the only ultimate hope worth having is the hope that there will one day be a resurrection of the body and life everlasting. That's the promise that you can rest in because it was given by Jesus himself. It can be the hope that you fill in that blank with that will actually work, where you can say, anything can happen to me, but I know that I will be raised with Christ one day for eternity, literally for the entirety of the Christian faith. This is what has given Christians confidence to face anything and everything. And we talk about this all the time, the atrocities that Christians have faced. How could they do such things? Because of this, the hope of eternity It's what's given Christians over thousands of years the courage to be martyred, to show up and care for those that are plagued by some of the worst diseases in the history of the world, to be killed horrifically, to endure through persecution, to face down disasters. It's how Christians in the face of immense suffering can and have endured, not perfectly by any means, but with deep hope. It's what every Christian is invited into to hold on to as we live in this broken world full of toil and brokenness and sin and death. And that's what we're invited into too. To hope towards in your mundanity, in your pain, in the good, in the bad, in the suffering. You in Christ have an incredibly bright future ahead. Unimaginable. Now, I will be the first to confess that I have a plethora of ultimate hopes that are not this. And I fall into it all the time. Security, approval, whatever. And I think the reason that I do this, and I'm going to guess probably for you too, is that because I struggle to believe that any of this is actually true. Like It doesn't feel like it could be real. It's hard for me to grasp what's coming. I think we struggle to believe in the goodness of what Jesus has done and what he's promised for us. So what happens is we just settle. We just settle for the easiest thing. Like these other things, they're just there. They're more grabbable. Like it's way easier for me and for us to trust in a number in the bank account than it is to trust that this is the bedrock, that this is the thing that I can rest in. All of this biblical hope, well, at worst, it sort of seems not real. Like what? This is crazy. And at best, just seems like optimism, like wishful thinking. Hopefully that happens, but I don't really know. It's Monday. Does that resonate with you? Is that just me? If so, I I ran across a quote that I I just wanted to end with, because I think it just nails all of this right on the head. It's from J.I. Packer. He writes, Optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. I love that. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. But Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of their life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment 
The best is yet to come. Love that. On the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Eternal life for us in Christ is a certainty. It is a certainty for those in Christ. We will be raised with new bodies and live with God forever. So when we read this last line of the creed, it's not just tying it all up. It is us declaring with confidence and yearning for this to happen, for Jesus to come back. It is us declaring that we are hopeful that there is more than just this life. We believe that there is something better to come. It's not just a fool's hope. It's not optimism. It is hope and certainty that Jesus has secured for us, that Jesus was so committed to that he poured out his own blood to make it happen. So in the middle of whatever you're going through, of whatever trial, we have this ultimate hope that has been secured. It has been secured by Jesus himself so that we can joyfully and confidently say, as long as the resurrection of a body and life everlasting happens, which we know it will, then I'll be okay. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for your plan of redemption. We could do nothing to save ourselves, but you sent your son to die for us, to be raised, and to give us the hope and the certainty that one day we will be with you forever, that you will bring about the new heavens, the new earth, and new perfected glorious bodies for us. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to believe. Let every ache and pain remind us that there is something better to come. That we can look at the brokenness in this world and ourselves and know that it is temporary, that you will return. You will bring those who have died with you and those who are still here will be perfected. Let us hope in that. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.